Good morning. Good to see everyone here this morning. We're going to continue the series that we've been talking about these past six lessons about the five-part study, what has been called the five-part study. It's really how to get to know how the Bible really intersects with itself. And it's a tool that we use when we're trying to spread the gospel. You know, in the first studies, first two lessons, we talked about the age of the fathers, which is when God dealt directly with the head of each family, told them what he expected from them and expected them to follow. And that lasted for about 2,500 years or from Genesis 1 to about Exodus 20 when Moses went on Mount Sinai and got uh, the Ten Commandments, which started what we call the age of Moses or the national religion, which is where God had a nationality of people that were his people, and he communicated through them with prophets. And the prophets would tell them how to, what God was expecting of them and what God was going to do. They didn't always respect the prophets, but that's how God communicated with his people. Then that lasted for about 1,500 years, or from Exodus 20 to about till John 20, when the law of Christ came in effect. And then we are in this current age of Christ, or world religion, which has lasted ever since that point. Now, where we're at today, we talked about in the Old Testament, in the age of the fathers, and the age of Moses, that he's on his way. That Christ is on his way, that God has made a plan for a Savior, and he is on his way. The last two sermons, we have dealt with he's here. The life of Christ, what Christ did while he was here, the things that he did, the miracles he did, the teachings that he taught, and now we're to the point where he was here. That's where we're at now. We're at the fact he was here, so what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about the fact that Christ was here and what he did for us while he was here? (coughs) At this point in the study, I also like to put another arrow up there and say he's going to be coming back too. We need to remember that as well. Because this study has a lot to do with what's going to happen to you whenever he does come back. And the study that we're going to be talking about this morning deals with Christ, but not in the way that the last two have. The last two have dealt with Christ in the way that he, what, what he physically did while he was here. That he was God, and he was also man, and the things that he did and taught. Now we begin this section, which is your response to what he did while he was here. This has to do with you. And we're going to be talking this morning about the lesson is number seven, and it's the first study in salvation. Now, normally we don't break up the salvation study into two parts, but in order to cover it in lesson form, that's the way we're going to have to do it. Now, I want to give you a couple of warnings <coughs> before we get started here. Up to this point, everybody's going to be pretty agreeable with you when you're doing these studies. There's not going to be a whole lot of disagreements, and if there are, they're going to be minor disagreements. Every now and then you might run into one and one or the other. But the reason is because they really don't have a dog in the fight up to this point. They don't have anything personal to lose at this point. This is the first study where it gets really personal for them. And you can get into disagreements about grace and faith. And and we're going to teach you what the Bible actually says about those things throughout these two studies. Now... There's two things you, that I use to keep in mind to keep me from being impatient. And I can get pretty impatient because I've heard all this stuff since I was really little, and I go, why don't everybody just understand this? But there's two things I use to really keep myself from getting impatient. Number one is this could be the first time a lot of these people are hearing anything you, have, you teach them about this. Because of their congregations, if this, if this isn't what they believe, this isn't what they're going to be taught. It's just not going to happen. And number two... I like to remember a verse in Matthew 
What shall a man profit if he gain the world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? At the end of this study, you're going to ask them to make a decision about the most valuable thing they own. You're going to ask them to make a decision. You could be, have Bezos type money, the owner of Amazon, and the most valuable thing he still owns is his soul. And you're going to be asking them to make a decision, and you need to be respectful of that and give them the time to do that because it's a big decision. It's the most valuable thing they own. You know, everything they own in this world is going to burn up and be gone one day. But their soul is going to live forever. It's the most valuable thing people have. And we need to be remembering that whenever we talk to them about these things. Not get impatient. Not go, why don't you understand this? I mean, it's clearly written like this for a reason. You know, my, in my 25 years of doing this, this is the one study where I've had disagreements. But the thing you need to remember is, Keep think-sos out of it. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what the person I'm studying with thinks. It matters what the Bible says. You know, you may have a lot of thoughts, and that's fine. A lot of thoughts that we might have that may not really affect anything in this study. But if you don't have book, chapter, and verse, this is not the place for it. Because you can come out with your friendship intact. That's what a lot of people worry about. I'm going to lose friends because of this. You can come out with your friendship intact if you don't use your think-sos and I-thinks and just basically do what the Scripture says. Be able to point out everywhere the Scripture says what you're talking about. And you can come out with friendships intact even if they still end up disagreeing with you. Now that's just my uh, own think-sos on the 25 years I've been doing some of these, been involved in some of these. We're actually going to get now into the meat of the study and walk we need to be teaching people and what we need to understand ourselves. Maybe some of us don't understand some of this. Hopefully we can clear up some of that if you don't understand some of this over these next two studies. I'm going to cover the first half of salvation next week. Brother Yancey's going to cover the second half. And by the end, hopefully we'll have a clear understanding of what we should be teaching when it comes to salvation. <clears throat> the first thing I want you to imagine this morning is you're not sitting here at church or you're not sitting at home watching on Facebook Live. You're sitting in a movie theater. And you got your favorite seats. You went online and you got the, your favorite seats, whether it's the back in the middle, the middle of the theater, the front of the theater, wherever you want to sit, you got the premium seat. And when you sit down, you got your wife or your husband and your kids sitting next to you on one side, your, fa- your parents sitting to you, your brothers and sisters. And then you start realizing, man, I know everybody in this theater. There's that coworker I work with. There's my neighbor. Uh-oh. There's the people I don't like. They don't like me and I don't like them. What are they doing here? This is supposed to be about me. Everyone you've ever came in contact with is sitting in that theater in some seat. Not only are they in the seats, but there's so many people in there, they're packed in the aisles. We have a fire code violation going on. They're not on the aisles, standing there, waiting to see this great movie. Well, what possibly could this movie be? Are they coming out with another Toy Story? That'd do it. Another Star Wars? Man, that'd be great. As a Star Wars fan, I'll stand in line all day for no Star Wars movie. What movie are we going to be seeing? It's going to be the movie of your life. Everything you've ever done, whether you thought it was a secret or not, it's going to be up there on that movie. Everything you've ever done, everything you've ever done in your idle time, your free time, everything you've ever done is going to be up there on that movie for all to see. Not only that, everything you've ever said is going to be up there. Every word you've said in passing, no matter how insignificant to you at the time, 
Every word you've said in anger, every word you've said in happiness, every word you've said in sadness, every word, it doesn't matter how small you thought that word meant at the time, it's going to be up there on that screen. Everything you said whenever you were frustrated with your boss, when you were frustrated with your wife, when you were frustrated with your parents, every word you said is going to be up there. Not only that, everything you've ever thought is going to be up there. Even if you thought it and you were smart enough not to say it at the time, it's going to be up there. You know, as a call, we don't get accused of that a whole lot because whenever we think it, we say it. But every private thought, everything you thought about your coworkers, everything you thought about your parents, everything you thought about the people you really don't get along with, everything you thought about our government, on any subject, everything you ever thought is going to be played on that movie. We don't like to think about that, do we? Why does that scare us so much? Because it's going to show the good, and it's going to show the bad. We all like to be thought of as good. We don't want to think about the bad things we've thought, done, or said. And by the time that movie releases, people are going to have a totally different opinion opinion of you. People you thought were your friends may hate you now because of thoughts you had about them whenever they were going through something, and you're like, man, I don't know what, what they were thinking when they did that. People may not like you anymore because of things you said or things you've done. It could ruin every relationship you have with everyone in that theater. Now, the ones that don't like you, they just have a better excuse not to like you already. Again. But it can change your relationship with everyone in that theater. Everyone in that theater is going to have a different opinion of you when this movie is over. The good news is, that movie is not going to be playing today. But God has the ability to play that movie. God knows everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever said. He knows it all. It's a sobering thought, isn't it, to think about that. To think about that. Somebody knows everything I've ever done, thought, or said. Why is that so disconcerting? Because we don't always have good thoughts. We don't always say good things. We don't always do the right thing. You know, in Scripture, in Luke 8 and 17, it says, For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. You know, we like to think we have our secrets because we don't want people to know how we really are sometimes. But this verse right here tells us nothing is secret. Everything will be found out. You may be able to keep it secret from me. You may be able to keep it a secret from your spouse, your parents, the elders of the church. You may be able to keep it a secret from everybody on earth. But one day it's going to be made known. One day there will be no more secrets. God's going to take that movie and say, what were you do- Why'd you do this here? Why'd you think that? Why'd you say that? And everything's going to be made come out in the open. You know, there's a reason that should be disconcerting for us, and there's a reason for that. You know, we have God here, and we have man here. 
And God and man are two totally different types of individuals, two totally different types of beings. Isaiah tells us that God thinks on such a higher plane than us. Well, what's the problem between God and man? What's the big difference? What's the thing that separates us from God? In Isaiah 59 and 2, he says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Sin becomes between us and God. God can have no part of sin. And our iniquities separate us from our God. So the sin is what's separating us from God. And the problem with that is in Romans 6 and 23. For the wages of sin is death. You know what a wage is? It's something you earn. I go to work and they pay me a certain wage because I give my time, I give my effort, I give my talent to them for that amount of time, and they compensate me with a wage. It's something that I deserve. Or that through the contract I signed, they say I deserve. They may not think I always deserve the money they give me, but through the contract I signed, that's what we've agreed upon. The wages of sin is death. So everyone that sins deserves death. That's what we deserve. You know, whenever I was a kid in school, I wasn't always the best kid. I'd get sent to the office every now and then, and I'd be sent with somebody, and they'd be going, call my dad, call my dad. The first thing I'd say, don't call my dad. You do whatever you want to with me, just don't call him. Why? Because I didn't want to get what I deserved. I knew I deserved to be punished. This kid thought his dad was going to come up there and protect him from being punished for something he deserved to be punished for. My dad didn't work that way. As a matter of fact, if you got it at school, you pretty well got it when you got home, too. That's why I don't call my dad. You just do whatever you want. Just leave him out of it. You know what? People are really big about getting what I deserve. I want what I deserve. Well, if you sinned, you deserve death. Do you want that? Well, there's another issue with that. Because in Romans 5 and 8, he says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So even though we deserve death, that's what we deserve. That's what our wage should have been. Christ loved you, and God loved you enough to send his son to die for you. That's the good news of part of this. You deserve death. Yes, you do. Because you've sinned. But God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, that's a totally different concept than death. Everlasting life. We deserve death but because of God's love for us so much that he sent his son to die for us, we can have what we don't deserve, eternal life. None of us deserve that. If we stood before God on our own, none of us would hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. None of us would hear those words because that's not what we deserve. But through the death of Christ, it makes us where we can be partakers in that.
who himself bore our sins in his own body on a tree. 2 Peter 2 and 24. So Christ on the cross bore our sins. He paid the price for our sins. You know, God has always required a payment for sins. It could have been the blood of bulls and goats or the blood of the perfect Savior, but there's always been a payment required for sin. And somebody's going to make that payment someday. And Christ made the payment for us if we're willing to accept it. If not, we'll make the payment someday and we will earn, get exactly what we've earned, which is death. And when they heard all that, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? That's the, that's the real question. What are we going to do about it? We deserve death. God has given his son for us that way we, we might get eternal life. But what do we have to do about it? What is, it our, what is our responsibility in all of this? And that's what we're going to be covering through the rest of the study is what the human response is to what Christ has done for us. What the human response should be. And we're not going to use I think so's or this is my opinion. We're going to go straight to the book and find out what the Bible has to say about this. I'm not going to give you any opinions of mine. I may tell you a, way that, a certain way that I present certain things. But I'm not going to give you any opinion. I'm going to give you everything straight from the book itself about what should we do. What is our response to all of this? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That was the answer. That was the very next verse after they asked, What shall we do? Repent and let every one of you be baptized for the remission of sins. Or do, not, do you not know that are many of us that were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death? So when you're baptized, you're baptized into the death of Christ. You know, it's the only thing that we do that represents all three of the actions. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. When you're baptized, you're baptized into his death. And you are now in Christ. That's not my I think so. Book, scripture, and verse. Book, chapter, verse. You are baptized into Christ. You know, there are two words we hear a lot when we're talking about salvation. The first one is justification. What is justification? Well, the word justification means that we are just before God. That means we stand justified before God. You know how we talk about when we sin, we deserve death? Justification is when we stand there and we, and we are just before God. He can't find any fault in us. This is an event in that moment where you are repentant in baptism, you become just before God. It's not any works that you do. It's not how much money you donate to charity. It's not how many times you help people out on the side of the road. It's not any of those things. Those are all good things to do. I'm not going to tell you they're not good things to do. But the thing that justifies you is when you are baptized into Christ with a repentant heart. That's what makes you justified. And then Christ comes in you as well. 
in Galatians 2 and 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. How were we crucified with Christ? When we were buried with him in baptism. And now I don't live myself, but Christ lives in me. There ought to be a change that happens to us there. When Christ lives in us. We become a part of him and he becomes a part of us. And you can have Christ living in you today. It's something that we can make happen today. But there's another thing that we need to talk about too, and that's sanctification. You know, sanctification is another one of those words that you hear a lot of times when it comes to salvation. What sanctification means is means you are to be made holy. And this is a process. This isn't something that happens overnight. You know, I may be repentant and I may want to change my ways. And I may want to change things I do. But it's not going to happen overnight. It's a journey. This process is as you live and grow in holiness, you become more like that, more like Christ. You know, just because I was baptized doesn't automatically make me going to be just like Christ. I still have my problems. I still have my flaws. I still have things I have issues with. But now I'm working to be more Christ-like. And it's going to be a process. It's not going to be something you can do overnight. It's a journey. It's a road. There's two roads, remember? One that's wide and easy to follow. Where does it lead? To damnation. And there's one that's narrow and hard to follow. Where does that lead? Eternal life. It's going to be a process. There's going to be times where you feel like you're failing. There's going to be times where you feel like you're doing pretty good. But it's a process in sanctification. And the ultimate fulfillment of both justification and sanctification is eternity with Christ. That's where we all want to end up, is eternity with God. And when justification and sanctification meet, that's the end result. If we look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Is that where you want to be? You want to always be with the Lord? That should be your goal. If you're here this morning, that's probably your goal is to be with the Lord forever. Well, how do we do that? Through justification and sanctification. And like we said, justification is being made right before God. Sanctification is to be made holy, which is an ongoing journey. God loved you and gave you his son. That's some very good news. You know, we've talked a lot about, a lot about bad news this morning. We've talked a lot about what your sin causes, costs you and what you deserve because of your sin. But the good news is God loved you and gave his son. Some more good news is Jesus died for you. You know, sometimes we make a blanket statement, and it's true, Jesus died for the world, and it's true, but he died for you. He didn't just die for me in the entirety context, in the entirety of the world kind of context. He died for me personally. He died for the things I've done wrong this week. He died for the things I did wrong 15 years ago. He's going to die for the things I do wrong next week. 
He died for me and He died for you. And yes, He did die for the whole world. But it was your sins just as much as the world that put Him there. You must repent and be baptized. That is what God has called you to do because of what He, did, he has done for you. You know, we remember talking about Naaman, the prophet in the Old Testament. This is where I bring him back up. Somewhere along in this, uh, in this part of the study, I, this is where I bring him back up. You know, Naaman went to the prophet and got mad because the prophet asked him to go dip in a dirty river. He goes, Oh, Banai and Parfar rivers, Damascus, much cleaner. May I not wash in them and be clean? You remember what a servant girl told him when he got back mad? If God would have asked you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? Then why not more wash and be clean? God's not asking you to do anything great here. He's not asking for you to have some sort of miraculous saving experience. That's not what he's asking. He's asking you to do something simple that every one of us can do. Repent and turn away from our sins and be baptized into Christ. We can all do that. It's not something that can't be done. It's not some feeling you get. He's not asking you to feel this overwhelming sense of calm. You know, I was treating bugs one time, and this lady had, you know, like those theater ropes around one corner of her house. And I was like, uh, do you want me to treat over there? And she goes, no, I really don't want you to do that. I'm like, okay, well, can I ask you about the theater ropes? Because it kind of got my attention. I'm like, that's not something normally you see in somebody's house. And she proceeded to tell me that's where God saved her and a great light came into her house and she wanted to keep that place holy. Now God has done great things. You can read of great miracles Jesus performed that the apostles performed. But none of them happened at the time of salvation. It may have caused people to obey God. It may have caused people to have more faith in God. But nobody was saved miraculously. Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. That was miraculous. And their response to it was to repent and be baptized. That's how they were saved. It wasn't because some great light shone upon them and God came into their heart. And people are going to fight you on this point. Because people want something great to happen to them to prove that God's on their side. Show us a sign that God's with me. And that's what I have to say. God didn't ask you to do something great. Why can't you just do what he asked you to do? Like Naaman did. In Acts 2 and 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now that's a lot of souls. I have never seen a baptism where 3,000 people were baptized. I've never seen that. Would I like to see that? Yeah, that'd be cool to see. That would be an awesome thing to behold, 3,000 people being baptized into Christ. But what we're on in this verse is, they that gladly received his word were baptized. You know, Naaman, whenever back in the day, he didn't gladly receive the word at first. He was mad and angry. And you may run across people that get mad and angry when you teach them about baptism and what God has asked them to do. 
But if they gladly receive the word, they should be willing to do what God has asked them to do. So now the question is, what about you? Have you done what God has asked you to do? Have you repented of your sins? Trying to turn your life around, walk that walk to become more like Christ. Have you been baptized into Christ? Raised to walk a new life? Because your everlasting soul depends on it. If you haven't done it, your soul may not be secure right now. I'm not going to say it's not because it's not my job to judge. It's not. But I know what the Bible says and I know what the Bible teaches about salvation. And it says you need to repent of your sins and be baptized into Christ and let Christ into you. And you can receive that gift of God that He freely gave on a cross that we didn't deserve. So that way we might live with Him in in eternity with Christ someday. But we have to do our part. We have to obey from the heart that form of gospel. You know, people say the gospel is good news, and it is. Well, what exactly is the good news? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the best news the world's ever heard. And the way we obey that form of doctrine is being buried with him in baptism, arise to walk a new life. Does it mean we're going to be perfect? No. But it means we're going to try to be more Christ-like every day. I'm going to try to be more Christ-like tomorrow than I was today, and the next day, and so on and so on. And I keep on that road to the end. <coughs> this is not the end of the study of salvation. Brother Yancey's going to finish that up for us next week. You could run into a lot of questions about grace and faith, and we're going to cover all those next week. We will. But this morning, the question I want you to think about is, have I done what God has asked me to do? And if you haven't, will you do it while we stand and sing?